Tom Maluli is an investment advisor representative with Maluli Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to the Maluli Asset Management Podcast. This is episode number 259. Thanks for tuning in. I am your co-host, Tom Maluli, and with me today is my other co-host, Brendan Maluli. Got a lot to uh, discuss, I think, right? So I think the first thing that we want to jump into is uh, Congress is sticking their fingers into retirement plans again. Yeah, they're thinking about some changes to the retirement landscape. You have to put it that way because they it's kind of a whole host of different topics that they jump around on, which is often the case. They kind of try to like band things together and then put them through. So there's I don't know what the headliner is in this package that they're trying to get approved, but um, I don't even you know. know the reason why they're doing this. It's not as far as I can see, it's a revenue neutral kind of package. There's nothing that increases increases tax revenue, doesn't really decrease it, Mm -hmm. it defers it a little further down the road, but I don't see any reason why they're even doing this. They're not even tackling the fiduciary rule, which is, I mean, we could do a whole nother podcast on that. Yeah, I think that that would be more important in terms of making an impact, let's say, but- uh, But what do we know? Right. There were a handful of things in this proposed bill that uh, that we find interesting or have some thoughts on, uh, positive or negative. I think there's three or four uh, highlights that we want to touch on. What was the first one? The first one is that they would like to encourage uh, plans like 401ks in a workplace to offer uh, annuity options uh, within the plan, which this has been brought up before. Yes. I want to say... Like a hundred episodes ago on this very podcast, right. we recorded. Uh, except that we were in our previous office when when we talked about this. Wow. I remember talking about it with you before. You have a good memory. You had a standing desk. It's now my standing desk. It's your standing desk now. Uh, That's right. But I remember talking. We've talked about this before, and so you probably have seen it multiples of the times since I'm seeing it for at least a second time now. Probably more. Part of the big issue is. When you look at the lump sum, let me back up even further. When you get your pension statement, if you have a pension, somewhere near the top of the statement, it's going to say you're on track to receive a monthly pension of X dollars per month. Right. They Sometimes they don't even tell you what the lump sum value is. A 401k statement is totally different. They hardly ever they do but they hardly ever tell you what this could translate into in a monthly income can we can we take an aside there because Sidebar. i because i think that if you reported that number to people which is the one that actually matters to almost everybody out there who's using 401k type plans the amount of monthly income that this is going to generate when you decide to stop working people would probably behave so much better with their investments because that That number is going to change so much less than the headline lump sum number of whatever is in the plan. And if we're talking about functionality, that is realistically, I mean, that's what we should care about, is it not? How much income is this going to throw off? Absolutely right. And so what I think gets people's attention is 
the staggering lump sum value of their 401k. And they get to a point where they think, whatever the number is for you, whether it's 250000 or a million dollars, whatever that number is, just about everybody gets to a point where they're like, oh my goodness, I can't, I can't manage this kind of money. I'm going to need an advisor to do this. And so what they're introducing is the opportunity to, when you want to, basically annuitize your 401k into a monthly stream of income. Which and, which no longer requires management because you're turning over the lump sum to correct. an insurance company who gives you a promise, as long as the insurance company is good, which I think is, in most cases, fine to hang your hat on, you will get your monthly check, and you don't have to worry about what should the mix of stocks and bonds look like, given that I anticipate taking X out per month in retirement? It kind of simplifies that maybe and turns what is a defined contribution plan back into something that looks more like a defined benefit plan, which is we've taken this transformation in full circle now. Right. People used to have pensions. Now a lot of people have defined contribution plans where they're more responsible for the investments and the contributions over time. And this would be a way to bring it back and say, you can simplify things again if you want, and we'll pay you a check in this amount. Brendan, isn't it possible or conceivable that people can do this without actually putting the money into an annuity? They could. Why can't you call your 401k provider and say, hey, send me $800 a month? I think that the problem is you, you can do that, but then people still have to look at that big lump sum number and they don't know if the mix of investments is right. And when the market's going crazy, they're not thinking about, well, you know, I have X percent in bonds and I'm only taking this out per month so I can afford to ride out this market volatility. And then they sell or do something rash at a time when they shouldn't. And that's that's what you're paying a price for to avoid. You're avoiding that because people can definitely screw that aspect of it up because it's, it's not that simple. And we, we've seen people who went to cash in 2008 and never never went back into the market. Right, and so they would have been better off buying the monthly stream of income because now what they've done is permanently lowered the amount of income that they can take from an account because they've been sitting in cash not earning any kind of a return. The opportunity to add the annuity feature to a 401k basically eliminates seeing that lump sum and like in my previous example where they're sending out the 401k plan administrator is just sending you a check for $800 a month, you're still going to see the value of the account going, getting jacked around by the stock market, mm -hmm. which may cause you to make more bad changes, decisions, bad yeah. decisions. With the annuity, you're basically giving up the asset and saying, I'm turning in my 401k. In return, I'm going to get a check for $1,700 a month yeah. forever. So just to put a bow on this aspect of, of the bill, I think that it falls under the category of what we kind of said at the beginning. I don't think this is necessary because you could work your entire career with 401k and you could do this. You could annuitize your IRA and whatever lump sum or the four, you could roll the 401k or a portion of it, which is probably more advisable than going all in uh, on an annuity. But you could do this without it being offered within your plan. Like you could just shop it to different insurance mm. companies that offer annuities and say, if I give you X, what will you pay me and over what period of time? And just find one that fits for you. And I think that in a lot of cases, doing that with a portion of your money for, for some people might make sense. 
So one of the other highlights in this House package that they vote, when are they voting on this? I think it's coming up. Oh, yeah. no, they, they, they already passed it. Right, it needs to go... Um, go to the Senate now. Yeah, House House passed it, and it needs to go to the Senate, and then uh, the President. So I think so the, next week is when it's going to go for... Uh, or no, that's that's something different. Right. Never mind. So the um, one of the other highlights is uh, basically wrapped up by saying you're not getting older, you're getting better? <laughs> so they, they want to change the RMD age. Okay, so, so the, RMD stands for Required Minimum Distribution. If you're anywhere near your late 60s or over 70, you know what we're talking about. Yeah, there seems to be a lot of anxiety around what what these things are and what they mean uh, to us. A lot less serious than what they seem like to people who come to our table who who seem genuinely worried about them sometimes. Like, I, I know I need to start taking money, but I know it, people usually don't have any idea of, like, how much... Yeah. what the ramifications are going to be. These begin in the year that you turn 70 and a half now. They want to push that out to age 72. Uh, and I guess the, the reasoning being that life expectancies are longer and they'd uh, like to give people an extra year and a half leash until they have to start taking money from their accounts. I don't necessarily have like strong feelings about this. It's it's fine. I just don't think that it does anything really to help anybody. Well, I guess the if you start with a... Um your first required minimum distribution at age 70 mm-hmm. or 70 and a half, you have a longer life expectancy. Mm-hmm. And so if you start at 72, you have a somewhat shorter life expectancy. Yeah. Is so, it like, is the table going to be the same? Do you just have to start taking more when you're 72? Like, so is that you're actually going to start by taking more. Right. A higher percentage than at, you would have. Right. At yeah. 72, because you're starting at a later date and mm-hmm. have... An implied shorter life expectancy. Honestly, I think they should index uh, Social Security distributions the same way. Yeah, I think uh, I think another thing that somebody brought up, kind of used this point as a jumping off to say something else that I agreed with was that rather than do a change like this, where I can't think of a huge use case in terms of who this makes sense for or helps a ton in terms of moving the needle on their retirement being good or bad, you could take something like the IRA where the average person under age 50 can put in uh, $6,000 a year, $7,000 if you're older, uh, and just make that amount equal to what you can do in like a 401k. Yeah. Because then it just makes it simpler for people to save for retirement, which is ultimately what, if you're going to be focusing on legislature to do something for retirement, I think that we should be thinking of ways to get people to save more for retirement or to enable them to save more for retirement, make it simpler, and not necessarily doing something like this where I just, I mean, sure, it, it helps if you don't, if you're 70 and you don't want to take money, now you have an extra year or two, but like, does that it's make or break or your retirement? Or, yeah. Like, I don't think you're going to make it or break it the based fact on that. that. That we're talking to some clients about donating their required minimum distribution to a charity. Yeah, they don't get the deduction, but they don't get the tax bill either. Tells us that there are some people out there, a, a portion of the population that don't need to take this money out Hmm. and they would rather do something beneficial Hmm. or let's give the money to something that's going to really be positive. It's interesting because a lot of people will complain that they have to take their RMDs and then you float the qualified 
charitable uh, RMD as an option, and that quickly gets shot down. Nah, too. It's I like, still well, want to take it. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> I don't need the money, and I don't want to pay the taxes, but I also don't want to donate it to anything. Right. Some people do, and that's terrific. If people want to, they can give up to $100,000 a year, based on whatever their RMD is, to a charity, and then there's no tax for anybody, because charities don't pay tax, and right. you don't have to pay it, which is terrific, but a lot of people don't they're in a they're in an area where they don't necessarily want to give the money away, but they also want to complain about the taxes. And yeah. I think that that's an interesting spot to be. That's just life. It's you know? the American way. Yeah, that's it's fine. Kind of the way. It interesting is. observation though from yeah. experience. I don't here. really understand why they're talking about this because, as I said earlier, it's not a revenue generator for. The RMD Congress. thing. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't. Yeah. So uh, some of these other things that they they floated. Um, and these were more on the side of helping to pay for some of these changes, I guess. So some of the revenue they would lose from bumping out the RMD age, um, they would pay for. This is a point of contention, I guess, for a lot of people is that they're going to change the rules on what we in the industry call a stretch IRA, where you can name a beneficiary on your uh, individual retirement account. Uh, let's say you're 70 and you want to leave it to your grandchild in there. 15 you can you can name them as the beneficiary and then whenever you whenever you pass away they inherit your ira and they have to take rmds based upon not your life expectancy but their own meaning that ira can last them for decades if they're just taking out the minimum i mean they're obviously they're always welcome to take more than the minimum as everybody is but uh interesting way for people to pass on uh, assets to the next generation and they're it's proposing they're, they're going to put a, a schedule on it where you would have to regardless of your age you would have to deplete it by the end of like 10 years is, is what they're talking about so just to put a, a cap on that so that would bring in more tax revenue for the government where they're losing some by bumping out the rmd age to 72 like you said it's it's like a revenue neutral or apparently i don't i haven't crunched the numbers but you got to give up something to get something. And I'm not sure I would want to make that trade-off. I think the stretch IRA is a better planning tool than worrying about RMDs. I think the stretch IRA is probably one of the greatest things that they've allowed in the last couple of years in the tax code. I think it's a terrific way to continue compounding money for a long period of time. But yeah, something, I don't know. Where, where, how long has that been around for? It's not new, uh, is it? It's not new, but they enhanced it in what they could do. Uh, I actually think it was in 06. Okay. So it's been around for about 10 years. Mm-hmm. But you know, prior to that, it was, hey, it can go to a surviving spouse. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's getting paid out. Mm. And you know, pay the tax, and here's your check. Right. That's really it. That, yeah. that was the only option. Yeah. It's interesting how you said that they're discussing a 10-year cap Mm-hmm. I'm going to really sound old when I talk about this. But when I got started in the business in 1983, we used to have clients who would do um, three-year or 10-year. They could choose which schedule they want, income averaging. So say you had a period of time where you got bonus money from your job, where it was crazy for one year. You could go over a three-year period and do income averaging and spread your, your income tax taxes. liability over three years. Right. You could also do it like if you had a startup that went public uh, or some crazy transaction where you had a lot of income recognized for two or three years, you could do income averaging over 10 years. Hmm. I don't know why they got rid of this, but things that pop into my mind is that 
if people have a ton of money in one year and then they're supposed to pay a tax bill over a period of 10 years, like what if the money isn't there anymore? What if yeah, they spend it all? <laughs> it's a problem. Like, and aren't people very prone to do stuff like that? It happens. It <laughs> so, does happen. Yeah. So I, ask any baseball player. Yeah. Like you see these guys going broke who make millions of dollars. Yeah. Yeah. A ton of money. So I, I guess that that's why they got rid of that. All of this got wiped clean, kind of like a scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark with the TEFRA, with Tax Equity and Fiscal Responsibility Act in 1986. Mm -hmm. So all of these cute little things just gone. Good while it lasted. So the stretch IRA is, I think that that's probably part that I would love to see eliminated from this uh, tax package because it, it really... Uh, is a is a great benefit to the folks that have the opportunity to use it. Yeah, I uh, I don't know. That seems like to be where they're making this into something that's revenue neutral, though. So I wonder what else would be put on the uh, chopping block. Like he, there would have to be something given up to bump out the RMD age. I would imagine they can't just. I mean, they could they could just do that, sure. but it would add to the deficit. I don't know if anyone cares about that no anymore. No one seems to be worried about that. I don't know why. There was one other thing that I saw in there about uh, group 401ks. Yeah. So this this could be on the table to help small businesses where the cost of having a retirement plan is either prohibitive or um, makes... Hey, let me tell you, having a, 401, a full-blown 401k at a company like we have here, it's not cheap. Right. It's expensive, especially, you know, when you have five, six, 10, 12 employees, it's very expensive. You get better rates when you scale and have a big company to sure. offer it to. Places that offer 401ks can cut you a better deal. And so it's 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 a lot to put on the plates of small businesses, especially the size that you're alluding to, like, like our company here. This would allow them to band together with other companies that are in their industry or or are very close to it and they could come up with maybe a a lower cost or a better solution for all of the employees collectively because they could band together to get some of these better group rates things like that so we're members of the financial planning association right pa and they offer us uh, group disability coverage through that they reached out to me just last week and they said would you be interested in Uh, submitting some information they're thinking about a pilot program for group health coverage basically through members of this financial planning association fpa it's a national association so this would be like an affiliate program and i can see something like a group 401k getting rolled out in the same kind of fashion i'm a little worried though why and why is that if this gets mishandled if it gets turned over to companies that want to just gum up the works with some high fee investments in the 401k plan, going to be a problem. I would hope that since it's a 401k and it'll be subject to, well, I don't know, ERISA. we're assuming a lot. If it's under ERISA laws, it, it can only be so egregious. I mean, we've seen some real horror shows in the 403b space, which isn't regulated by ERISA. You'd hope that it's at least going to be up to ERISA standards, but that's not to say that we've seen or that we haven't seen terrible 401k plans too that are subject to ERISA and it's just people getting gouged because it's a small company and right. owners getting talked into stuff that they don't understand by largely uh, insurance reps. A lot of 401ks for small businesses, just so listeners understand, 
you know, if you work for AT&T or General Electric, you have a plan that is probably very low cost and probably very well, low well cost. run. Yeah. yeah. However, if you work for a small employer and again, it's five or six employees, even up to 40 or 50 employees, your plan is usually put together by the business owner's insurance agent or their broker at a brokerage firm. Right. And so you're paying retail prices instead of wholesale prices. Mm -hmm. That's, a, I guess, a good analogy. Yeah. It's very expensive. So, and that kind of brings back the other point of uh, maybe, I don't know, if this solution works out, it, it could be very good uh, if it lowers costs and gives more people access to plans because one of the one of the ways that small businesses handle this sometimes is to just not have a plan. And then so if your company doesn't offer a plan, the silver lining is that you're always eligible regardless of your income. You can contribute to an IRA and it's deductible, but you can only send in $6,000 a year. That's it. So I think that if you're not covered by a plan at work, I don't see why you shouldn't be able to send $19,000 like you would into a 401k, but but send it into an IRA instead. Again, there would be ripple effects to that too that they would have to look at. They would have to find a way to make sure that it isn't just helping the wealthiest people to put more money into an IRA on top of their 401k because right. that's not what we're intending here. This is for people who work at a small business that can't afford to, to have a 401k plan. And that that's a lot of people. I don't know what the exact number is in, in the country, but I would imagine it's probably only about 50% of people have access to a 401k plan. Access, right. not necessarily participating. Right, they don't, they might not use it. Laws that you could create to raise that number, the people who have access to and participate in a 401k plan or whatever uh, plan would be offered through their place of employment, I think doing stuff to raise those percentages should be the goal of legislation and not necessarily some of this stuff that we're talking about. So right. maybe the group 401k plan thing is a it, good idea if it can help. It raises the bar for everyone. Yeah. It gives everybody the opportunity or more people, like you said. Yeah. Not everybody. They're not, not everybody's going to save even if they have access to it. Right. But if they don't have access to the plan at all, then they're definitely not going to do it. Here's my concern with this is that, as I mentioned earlier, if the, if these group plans get, administered by you know if they let the brokers have it they're gonna wreck it you know they, they gave the 529s they handed them over to the brokers they wrecked it hmm. okay uh, if they hand over these group 401ks to brokers they're probably gonna just line them with fees it's gonna be a problem you know they could use the model of the TSP the thrift savings plan for government employees you want to just talk a little bit about that. Their their fees within the plan, the TSP savings plan, which is for government employees, uh, they make Vanguard fees look high, which is a joke if, if you don't follow. Vanguard has some of the lowest fees in the industry, and these funds that are offered within the TSP are like a fraction of Vanguard costs. They're, they're basically free, very simple options in terms of putting together an allocation. It's chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry, right. essentially. That's Which is what people should be doing in their company 401k while they're accumulating. They should set up a sensible allocation and let it be an average in. They shouldn't be hopping around from fund to fund all the time. It's a really low-cost plan, and this is where all the people creating government bills have their own retirement dollars going, so they should give us access to the same plans that they have. But that... 
isn't the way the world works because they also have really great health care and we don't have access to that either. It's all about fairness or the lack of. Right. Yeah. But yeah, that could be another solution. That's going to wrap up episode 259. Thanks again for tuning in and we will see you or catch up with you on uh, episode 260.